Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Claire Oshetsky. Welcome to Our Shelves, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lucy. Claire Oshetsky is a novelist whose short fiction has appeared in numerous reviews and anthologies, and she has also written articles for Wired, Salon and The New York Times. Her novel, Chouette, has just been published by Virago. Claire, I want to begin by talking about Chouette. It is an extraordinary novel, um, something unlike anything that I can think of reading before. So I'd love it if you could maybe give our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it um, a little bit of an introduction. Chouette is what I almost like to think of as a memoir of my experiences of motherhood. I am the mother of two what I like to call non-conforming children. They had trouble integrating into schools. And uh, my younger child in particular used to behave in ways that sometimes frightened uh, her teachers. And uh, I found motherhood very different from what I expected. With both children, they were born at home and I was like, cool. I went back to work. They were born in the morning very conveniently. And I went back to work in the afternoon. I was a freelance journalist. And wow. <laughs> sort of felt like I got this. I'm warrior mom. But uh, those kids did not cooperate. They needed uh, a full-time mom. And um, it was really quite an unusual and disorienting uh, truth for me to understand that uh, some children and um, some children need more. They need a full-time person there to be their champion. And um, I wrote about it while it was happening, but what I wrote was kind of self-serving and angry because I didn't, I didn't expect to need to do that job. And um and then I realized this is the work of my life and uh, kind of threw myself into being a full-time mom. And the book itself, I wrote after things settled down a little bit. My children grew up and uh, are very independent now. And it's really looking back uh, in a deep way, a deeply felt way for me at uh, 
the story of a mother who is disoriented and upended by a very unusual child, uh, what I call an owl baby in the in the book. And I, I would like to add that my daughter was my primary consultant for the book, and it became a wonderful bonding experience for us both that uh, she shared her memories and and we talked about it as I was writing. So it's it's been a great experience for us both to to see the book come um, to be published. That's I mean that's a wonderful sort of story about this kind of collaborative process that you had with her. Well, I mean you're the one doing the writing, but you and I think in in the copy that I've got, you do say at the back that however surreal Chouette feels to us both, like our shared true story. That's a beautiful way of describing it. That's how it felt. And uh, just to give one example of how she helped me, uh, my daughter is a musician now and um, is very prolific and uh, very knowledgeable about music in a way that I'm not. And so I, I made music a big part of the novel. And she advised me about how to approach that. There's a lot of specific... Uh, musical pieces uh, Mm. identified in the piece in in the novel. And these were things that she mostly chose uh, for a certain scene and um, some things I put in and she said, no, that doesn't fit. And so I took them (laughs) out and, and that was lovely to, to share that way too. That's really interesting. Did you uh, tell me a little bit more about how you went about that? Did you go to her with certain scenes and say, what I need is a sort of piece of music that will fit this scene? Or did you ask her to sort of just give you examples and then you would listen to them and think what works here, what doesn't work? Well, she was almost in an editorial role. So um, I would put something in and she'd say, no, 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 no. This is, this is incorrect for these reasons. So I'd have to like work harder. So she didn't do the work for me, but she was sort of my guide through a musical landscape that made sense. Um, and, uh, my editor at Virago, uh, had the idea of making a, a, a playlist and mm-hmm. there is a playlist now on Spotify that accompanies the book. Oh, how wonderful. Well, if readers haven't, um, listened to that already, it's, it's up there waiting for you. Can I just go back briefly then to what you were saying a bit about memoir? Cause I'm really curious about this, this idea that you started writing something that was, you know, very much based on your own experiences, but you what was the problem with it, writing it as a sort of straightforward memoir? Were you too close to your material? I couldn't really, I think I was at arm's length, actually, because okay. there's issues of privacy. I'm writing about my children. Yeah. And and I had opinions that may maybe they don't share, or obviously I made big mistakes that probably I don't recognize because I'm like doing my best and I'm sure they would have their own idea of um what happened when we were uh, going through this life experience together of them growing up and being different. So uh, I didn't feel like it was my story to tell. I, it just felt like I, if I were to s- say it in my words, I'd have to be very cognizant of their privacy. And mm-hmm. and it was getting in the way of, of saying what was true. And as soon as I leapt into this more fictional, fantastic world, it felt very viscerally true to me. Like, yes, this is exactly what what it was like. And mm. and it's 
it's kind of weird. I mean, I will acknowledge that it's weird because the book itself is very surreal. Um, the, the mother in the book is raising an owl baby. The baby is, um, a hunter and eats raw animals at, at some points and, and obviously doesn't fit in, in preschool because of this. So, um, but but for me, it felt like, oh, yeah, this is the way it was to be mother to my children. Mm. Well, the emotional intensity was the, the truthfulness, right? That, that, that this, this was a way in which you could talk about what it felt, what it, I suppose, yeah, what it, it, it felt to me like a very honest depiction of what motherhood felt like, even if this is not, you didn't raise an actual owl baby, that baby, that's sort of beside the point, right? Yes, that's how I felt. And be, by... Uh, wrapping it in this fictional world, this very fantastic world, I could be very honest without mm. worrying about anyone's um, true story who was actually living it with me. Yeah. I also, there something I very much admired about it and found fascinating was the the sort of violence of motherhood that you really go into here, that obviously you are talking about you know, we're talking about an owl baby, we're not talking about a real baby, but there is a kind of this sort of feral, very kind of raw state of being that your mother, Tiny, the fictional mother, go, that sort of goes into in the existence with her, with, with Chouette, with her owl baby. And there's that wonderful line at some point where she says that birthing a child is a lifelong terrorization by the very child that we love. And I found that so evocative because it, I think that, again, it's something that really strikes true to, I imagine, quite a lot of mother's experiences. I hope so. I think even if you have the most um, easygoing baby around, uh, there is some moment, particularly in um, your early experiences, your first experiences of motherhood, where you are at a loss. Um, mm. And this this creature who is completely dependent on you is unreachable or um, it just won't let you sleep or, or is completely dependent on you and completely unable to take care of um, itself. And it's up to you to figure that out. And for some, I think every, every mother has some moments. Um, they might be right at the beginning uh, and just last a few days, or it might be, um, the child won't sleep for a year and you need to deal with that. And, and there's like nothing, nothing you can do except give and yield and, and be there. And so I'm hoping that even um, people who don't have children can, um, can relate um, that you might have had a, a sibling that was a, of a challenge um, that you felt um affected the family or you have taken care of a parent that was um, at times unreachable or, or very difficult to deal with because of health or um, mental health issues. So that, that helplessness and yet complete responsibility of taking care of someone is, is what I really wanted to have be the heart of the book. Mm. Well, I think you've done that excellently. It is, a you know, I read it very much as a, as a novel about 
looking after other people not just you know motherhood is just one example of that obviously but there are like you say there are so many other examples that can resonate with many 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 different readers let's go into our main questions and I think some of these are some of your answers are really interesting because I think they they resonate with your own work in kind of fascinating ways um so first up please Claire tell me about um a book I think you've got two books that are currently on your bedside table that you'd like to talk about Yes, I um, I really love a novel uh, by a Belgian author, um, Adeline Dieudonnet, uh, called Real Life in English. Uh, it was translated by Roland Glasser. And uh, I recently uh, led a, a discussion about this book that was a lot of fun because um, the book itself is a it has a child protagonist, which I it's kind of a favorite kind of book for me who is slightly feral in uh, slightly um, on her own at an age where she shouldn't be. And um, additionally experiences early in life, um, death of, of someone that she feels responsible uh, for that, that she caused it. And um the book is a fascinating look at a, a, a child's experience of, of a very um, uncertain, chaotic world and, and trying to survive through it. Um, we had a lot of fun talking about this book because um, it brings up for me um, something as a writer that, that was in, in, of interest is um, how fiction can slip between the real and the fantastic I mean, of course, it's all made up. It's it's fiction, but um, taking that uh, fictional world into things that are obviously impossible, um, I think that Diodonne does that very well. And um, yet, for some people, it's too much. It was like, well, I can't believe that that this child could carry an elephant tusk because elephant tusks are very big, and <laughs> and so they'd be very like viscerally. Um, real in their reactions. And, and I, that's just a fascinating question to me as a reader, like how, how some things people buy into and other things people are like, no, I can't believe that even though it's all fictional. So it's fun to read. Um, and uh, kind of a, yeah, it, it sort of touched things that I really like in other books. Barbara Comins writes a lot about uh, children like this, and I love yeah. all of her novels. So, so I loved it when you first, when you sort of um, told me you were going to discuss this novel, and you said if you haven't read it already, I think you'll like it because it is very. There are sort of interesting similarities with Barbara Cummings's work, and you were so right. It was right up my street as well. I kind of I have a thing for those. I think, like you say, these child protagonists that are sort of out of their depth in a strange world and the way that it becomes almost, you know, it's a sort of dark fairy tale, right? These kind of strange real world fairy tales that just hit slightly off kilter. And I think that slightly off kilterness is partly because a child's eye view of the world, especially with, with the kind of evil, um, with the kind of terrible things happening in it, is always slightly off kilter anyway, right? Exactly. It's real to the protagonist. And somehow this author has uh, allowed us to enter into that naive, uh, terrifying sometimes uh, viewpoint of a child. Um, and the the book it reminded me of most was The Vet's Daughter by Barbara Comins. And mm -hmm. what I liked was that 
both have, having read both of them, I realized they both have a daughter who despises their mother for not protecting them from uh, an abusive father. And yes. they both use animal references to their mothers. And I, I just, I started thinking about that, that that would be true, that, that there's this element of, of a father being abusive and that the, the child would blame the mother. And, and it, it really hit me after reading both of them that they were using animalistic descriptions of their mother and they really disdain their mother for allowing herself to be abused. And in some ways I found that enlightening to the whole idea of a dysfunctional family. Yes. I think I, yeah, I always with the vet's daughter as well. The descriptions of the mother in that are so visceral. The the father as well. He treats the mother like an animal, doesn't he? That's so it right. sort of encourages the daughter to think about her like that, and she becomes another sort of sick person or sick being in this house, right? Like the animals around her, and so it's incredibly um, claustrophobic and kind of horrific. And something similar does happen in real life. They are they are astonishing books. I'd be very interested to know if. Um, uh, if the writer of real life had read Barbara Cummings at any point, I don't know. I don't know what, whether she's in translation at the moment. It'd be interesting to find out. Yes, I would be interested too. Uh, Diodine in real life uh, calls her mother an amoeba. So she's like Ooh. moving further oh, down yes. the, the chain of animal. Um, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. But of course, and yeah, this amoeba who doesn't do, she doesn't do anything. She kind of can't, she can't, she hasn't got an identity even in the house, does she? She does so little to either to protect the children or to kind of help them or to the sort of, there's a kind of blankness there where there should be a real presence, right? That's right. I also yeah. uh, love this novel for its uh, contrast with um, The Discomfort of Evening mm. um, by Mar Marika Lucas uh, Reinfeldt, I don't know, um, but uh, I believe that won the Booker International Prize, that that book, and um, it has the same theme of a child feeling responsible for a death, and they were, they came out within weeks of each other, so it was an interesting contrast to me where one is very relentless, um, that there's no redemptive feeling, and, and on the other hand, um, Real Life by Diodine has this kind of plucky I'm going to survive this feeling and and they they just were very different in ways that attracted me yeah no I think that was the other book that I thought about when I was reading it um and I always find it fascinating when books that are kind of similar in, in interesting ways that get published within such a short period of, you know so close to one another and one of them perhaps gets more attention than the other and then why is that what was it about this one book that really resonated with readers and then the other that's kind of gone under the radar slightly by comparison it's always I don't think one ever well one doesn't necessarily always find out but if people did enjoy the discomfort of evening I think they would very much um, enjoy real life. I also chose Against White Feminism Notes on Disruption by Rafia Zakaria and this book has such a kind of aggressive title against white feminism, but I found it very inclusive and just thoughtful in ways that I was ready to have thoughts about where Zakaria is defining white fe feminism is as not just white people's feminism, but as a, a way of structuring the goals of feminism to mirror success or the idea of success that's very much in line with white male success and white Western cultures, ideas of success. 
And she points out that not everyone can be president of a company and, and we need to deal with structural elements as well. And uh, the thing that really hit me was her analysis of the war in Afghanistan and how um, for the first time, really, the, the government of um, the United States, um, which was a conservative government at the time, aligned itself with feminist goals in a very um, kind of direct way and that that the war was about freeing women who were oppressed and um i i think that zakaria does a good job uh, pointing out that bombing people is not necessarily a good way to um even if you build a school later that it, it's not necessarily the best way to to allow women to grow as as uh, equal individuals within their culture and indeed the way that that effort has collapsed um, in the last few months after 20 years, and I think proves her point. So I enjoyed it and I recommend it. I'm really interested what you said at the beginning of that, that you were, re- you said that you were ready to hear this, that you're ready to read this book, ready to hear the things in it. What did you mean by that? Well, I've mentioned that I spent uh, most of my adult life in this caregiving role well, kind of disparaging it in my own head, like, oh, I'm kind of a failure and definitely a failure as a feminist. Here I am in this very traditional role. I'm not making money. <clears throat> so um, it, it allowed me to reflect back on that and realize that uh, many of women's experiences uh, are excluded from uh, the idea of feminism as, as I thought of it. And um, thinking about how, um, well, it's a very big topic, how, how culture has really formed my idea of success to be something that is competitive with other women, or that allows me to judge other women or, or to feel superior to other women more than feeling like they have something to teach me. She has a wonderful part right at the beginning of the book um, where she talks about the words resilience versus resistance and Mm -hmm. that there's something to be learned from women who are working within a a structure uh, that is oppressive and finding a way through, um, through traditional cultures that, that they're a part of to, to affect change. And that that is often a kind of change that's more uh, long lasting than, than something coming from outside, like buying, buying a woman a chicken so they can start a farm or, you know, these, these things that are very Western oriented in terms of economies. Um, So I, I had to, I had to listen. And also I, I think that as, as an author, Zakaria is not saying, wait a minute, what about us? She's saying, hey, you feminists that think that this idea of of having a big career and, and um, making a lot of money is, is the way to be successful, come here and, and listen to what we have to say. Um, mm. And in that way, I, I found it um, enlightening. Mm. Put very brilliantly. Um, next up, Claire, I think you're going to tell me about a recent film that's made you think. 
Yes, I chose uh, Lingua Franca, directed by and written by um, Isabel Sandoval. And um, Sandoval is a trans woman from the Philippines, and she has written a um, story of an undocumented worker in Brooklyn who's coping with um, life during the Trump era. And one of the things I loved about the movie is it's it's kind of funny. People are calling it tender or quiet, but what it is is it's a, written by a trans woman and does not rely on tropes of violence towards trans women or or terrible things happen to trans women. It's it's like the threat is always there, but it doesn't happen. So. Um, one of the things I loved about it is there's a love scene that is so different from the crying game, which is like the, the man is just horrified by the, the, um, the lover's body as, as um, he comes to, to understand um, that it's not what he expected. Whereas in this movie, there's a love, a love scene that is just a love scene. And, and it's, um, it's amazing that way. And it really reflects on poverty, uh, not just for, for uh, undocumented workers, but her lover is um, a second generation Russian Jewish uh, man who is an alcoholic and he has a terrible job in a, in a, um, as a, in a, a meat, meat processing plant. And, and um, so the two of them are, are kind of, giving me a, a look at a, a way of life that does not get enough attention in, in fiction or in film, I believe. And I, I really recommend the, the movie. Sounds sort of strange saying it, doesn't it? But the idea that a sort of tender and quiet love story that doesn't shock or doesn't, isn't got some, hasn't got all these kind of horrific elements of violence um, explicitly in it is somehow now maybe a sort of a brave piece of filmmaking because those aren't stories that we might see when we're talking about trans characters on screen. Yes, I felt that way very much, Lucy, that um, it really took a... I, I've been kind of on the fence with this um, artistic thought of, well, trans people need to write trans stories and, and trans actors need to write trans act, uh, be in trans roles. I mean, I, I believed it uh, as a political statement, but then when I saw this film, I realized what we're missing by not allowing trans people to tell their stories freely because it was just so much more nuanced and, and lovely and human than um, the shocker kind of um, trans stories we've been um, given in the past. And um, it, it was revelatory for me that way to see the film. Our shelves will be back in just a moment. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Claire Oshetsky about what we lose when we don't let trans people tell their own stories. Uh, next up, Claire, I am going to ask you about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way. And um, I think your answer to this, I think your answer to this is fascinating, but I think it also maybe relates a little bit back to um, some of the things that you were talking about having learned with reading against white feminism. So tell me a bit about the book, first of all. Yes, I chose The First Wife, A Tale of Polygamy by Paulina Ciziane. Uh, translated by David Brookshaw. It came out in uh, 2016 in English, um, published by the U.S. Uh, publisher Archipelago. Um, and I'm not sure if it ever got into print uh, in the U.K. Uh, the It is out of print now um, mm. in the U.K., uh, and the, the publisher that had picked it up is is no longer publishing. You can definitely get the ebook though, just to tell our listeners, because I oh, read the good. ebook. Yeah, so people can. I'm so still, glad. Yeah. Well, um, so I I read I read this book first in 2016, and I I write down what I think of books as soon as I finish reading them, and and looking back, I wrote, oh, this is a universal story about uh, feminism and and uh, the bringing together of women who might have been enemies in another um, in another context. Uh, it's a story of a, a woman who discovers that his her um, husband has several other wives and um, legally or not treats them as as other wives and uh, she brings them together and as a as a group they become very powerful um, and effect change together. And, uh, you know, this is like very funny on some levels. It's yeah. it's just kind of uh, ribald and lovely writing and uh, gave me a, a real sense of, of uh, the writer. And and I was ready to be like, oh, yeah, I get this. But I want uh, I want to be more cautious now. You know, I read it a few times since and and I realized that, um, well, uh, Paulina Chiziane is about my age and she's lived through 30 years of civil war. Mm. And um, I just want to read from the, the author bio. Uh, Paulina Chiziane was born in 1955 in an area of Mozambique in which communication with the white colonizers was forbidden. In her mid twenties, she devoted herself to writing and became the first Mozambican woman with a published novel. So, so here's these two things about her that, I just realized I have no idea who she is and what she's gone through. I feel a connection with the book, but I also want to be very careful not to overstep and say, oh, yes, I understand. Because there's so many layers in this book that I I need to 
concede that I need to know more about Mozambican history. I need to understand the difference between North and South and how um, colonization has uh, shaped the culture. And a lot of it is is just out of my reach because um, Tiziane wrote in Portuguese. There's only one of her novels that has been published. And anything I find online, uh, any written interviews, I, I have to laboriously put into Google Translate to see what she said and because I don't know Portuguese. So so in a way it it's it's like my far frontier of um what I don't know about feminism and about women in other cultures. Even though I love the book. Yeah, you say that you've read it a few times now. Does your your do your impressions of it change with every reading in, in a kind of obvious way or is it a sort of slow revelation of new elements in the novel? Well, I've changed. I've, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I cannot assume I understand what this book means because the author is living a very different life, very different economy. When I think about the first woman to have published a novel, it's not just mm. it's not just that she's female, but that it's so difficult to publish anything uh, when um when a economy has different priorities or is in a civil war. So um, I have changed and I'm more skeptical of my ability to understand. So in a very um, concrete way, the first scene or among the first scenes, there's a, a sound, uh, a loud sound. And, and the protagonist says, Oh, a bomb. And, and it's like, I hadn't really thought about that in a, concrete way that you're living in a place where there's a lot of violence growing up in a place where there's a lot of conflict that every sound would affect uh, your your interpretation of your your environment so that's that's one way that I think the first time I just sort of la la and I was reading and I didn't really think about um, this author and her context in a way that I I think I do now Mm. I um I read it in advance of speaking to you today because you'd talked so um uh, you thought you mentioned it so uh, sort of eloquently and said how much it had meant to you um and I think like you yes I I wouldn't want to say that I understand it in in any shape or form but there was so much there that made me think um and particularly thinking about what you were talking about while reading against white feminism there were elements in this novel that made me really sort of step back and think think about my understanding of what feminism means to me as well and like how I might what the judgments I might make um unconsciously or you know about other people's decisions about the way that they lead their lives and what I think of as being a feminist act or a non-feminist act and uh, particularly this I don't know with the um you talked briefly at the beginning about the women who bond together and they sort of become an incredible force by in their sort of solidarity. Right. So it's an incredibly sort of, I don't know, empowering feminist fable. We want to call it a fable in the one hand. But yet at the same time, they're dealing with such kind of structural um, misogyny in the society, aren't they? That's right. And it's uh it just makes me thoughtful. I don't know if I have a judgment about it. Another way I've, I've, uh, I've changed is, is uh, some things I thought of as exaggeration and now I'm not sure. I'm like, I well, I, I need to be careful what I assume is, Oh, that would never happen. So um, in that way, I, I feel less close to the book, but maybe closer to the idea. There, there's still this, this, 
obvious feeling I, I have of, um, well, being a woman, there is a universal reality to that. And, and there is some foundational difference uh, that is is becoming more mysterious what that is though as as trans women uh, become part of the conversation and as different cultures become part of the conversation and are listened to with with uh, as we move out of our post colonial phase so um, I feel the bond with the author and with the characters and yet I also want to feel respectful of the differences. Mm-hmm. Can I ask about something that you mentioned briefly earlier? You said that those many of the years that you were caring for your children, you felt that you were not leading a particularly kind of feminist life and that you weren't out there making money. Um, you weren't sort of, you know, you didn't have a kind of a very empowering kind of uh, role in the workplace. So tell me a little bit about your how feminism has sort of changed in the meaning, what it means to you over the years in your life. I thought of it as an individual empowerment uh, about me, about my uh, success as an individual, and uh, it quite apart from from culture or expectation or family that I was important and my my role, my success that it was important to me to succeed. I have this great education and, and to be a prominent kind of successful person in, I I was a freelance journalist at the time before I had um, children and, and to be in that role felt very important. Um, And now I'm not sure. I, I think that feminism needs to possibly, um, come to terms with the fact that an individual contributor used to be just men where these successful individual uh, pathfinders are um, supported by their, their entire community mm-hmm. and somebody needs to do that support work. And I don't know who it is, but I know it needs to be done. And I know it's still just not, at all valued either economically or culturally. And I don't have an answer to that. Um, But that was sort of the core question I was trying to grapple with, with, with Chouette that, that this woman has to give up everything and she does Mm -hmm. so reluctantly, but someone has to do that work. And, and it's true of, of any, any human situation, the person who succeeds is, um, has to be supported. I, I think about um, the Supreme Court and the most recent um, addition there, and and everyone says, "Oh, she has seven children," and but she's not. She has to have support to have have the ability. It's not that she's out there doing it all by herself. That was kind of a revelation to me. It was a big surprise that oh, this other work still needs to be done. Someone needs to do it, and. Um, yeah, I I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't have a lot of answers. I just know that this idea of being an individual who succeeds on her own 
is uh, is flawed. It it mm. needs reexamination, as does the idea of of uh, success itself, or, mm. or what it means to be a successful human being. Um, I'm curious to know: Did you find that when you were when you found yourself in the role of caregiver and as a full time caregiver to your children, did you were you very aware that other people around you were for want of a better word, sort of looking down or judging that role compared to a sort of more high-powered, I don't know, career as a freelance journalist, if you could call that high-powered, but you know, <laughs> <I mean. laughs> did you, um, you know, was there, did you notice a sort of a, a change in people's attitude to you, a, a change in respect? Was there something that was Absolutely, clear? absolutely. Yeah. Every, every time I was in a group and um, introduced with my husband, there would be like, oh, um, you're uninteresting. You're not important. I'm going to talk to your husband. And um, and I had to keep reminding myself not to feel that way. Mm. And I still do. It's like, oh, it's, it, this is important work. This is important work. I, I had to talk myself into it. And sometimes I failed. And coming out the other side, as it were, no, realizing now that you have... Um more time to yourself now that you're not a full-time caregiver in the same way what does that feel like does that feel like a sort of is it a mixture of freedom and do you you miss it as well because surely it's a thing that kind of became very important to you and and defined your sort of identity for quite a long period of time well I miss my children because they're amazing and and seeing them at each stage even though they were very difficult for other people I I just adored their company and um, thought they were wonderful. So yes, that was wonderful. And I miss it. But um, I need to, I need to align myself with other women out there who've been in this situation. Maybe um, when you get to the end of caregiving, you are completely scoured out and you're good for nothing, basically, because you've lost 15 years of your career to something that no one values except possibly your children, not always. And, um, and you get to the end and it's like, what do I do now? And I had a terrible time uh, of feeling completely useless. I'd go to job interviews and, and they'd be like, well, what have you been doing? Nothing. And why should we hire you? You, you don't seem very interesting. And I, I, um, I wrote a novel. I mean, that was nice <laughs> to have this other kind of incredible thing happen that that I'm I'm now feeling like a human being again that has something to contribute. But but um, I do think a lot about women. However, like now we've had COVID, and mm-hmm. and who was taking care of those those people who needed care at home, and um, who still can't go back to their work full time? Who is losing that income and that um, that level of, of self, uh, selfhood. Now it's, it's mostly women. Of course, because there's lot, there was lots of talk, wasn't there early, even early on in the pandemic about how many women had given up work because they literally couldn't keep working and educate their children, or they were the first ones to be fired from the offices. So it's clearly hit, um, a whole sort of generation of women. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and last up today, if I may, Claire, I'd like you to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire. 
I chose Jan Morris, uh, who died recently, and I hadn't really heard of her before um, reading a review of her posthumously published book, Allegorizings. Oh, Um, interesting. And I I guess she's more well-known in the UK, maybe, than in the US. Um, Yeah, perhaps so. That's probably right, actually. So I find her writing just incredibly elegant and, and genteel and kind is the first thing that really hit me about her. And then um, reading her uh, short uh, autobiography, Conundrum, uh, that she wrote in 1974, I I was just amazed by her perception of of herself as a woman um, Mm -hmm. from the age of three. And um, she, she had this incredible life as a woman. and, And the way she the way she felt inside was entirely female and, and like she was wearing a costume almost that allowed her to go on these incredible adventures to, to climb Mount Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary and to be a foreign correspondent while always feeling uh, like a woman. And um, the story of her transition just seems so uh, there's so much clarity in her identity that she just never wavers or feels like she's has a mental illness. She never questions her identity. So I, I just found it um, a wonderful thing to read. And of course her histories, I love now that I've read, I've just read one of the trilogy and um, just reminded me so much of Barbara Tuckman, who I thought was one of a kind. And, and then I have this oh. other person who just loves to tell stories about, about people. And I've, I've enjoyed those as well. And I, I guess I admire her for her, um, her kindness and her, Mm -hmm. uh, her particular vision of herself as, as a woman um, that was unshakable, even with all this storm of, of real, um, certainly in her era of, of uh, people being confused or possibly disgusted by her choices. There's a great clarification in that book, isn't there? I think I remember the first time I read um, Conundrum and was so, I'm not sure quite what I was expecting, but yes, maybe something that was um, something that was sort of muddier or murkier or somebody who'd had a real torturous time in working out how to go about what they wanted to work out their own identity. But there is such a clarification in her mind, from, like you say, from such an early age. And it's written with such grace and and kindness, I think is completely right. She talks a lot about other people's kindness towards her, but you can also tell, you get the sense that she's clearly an incredibly kind person herself, right? Very much so. And I love that. I love kindness when I when yeah. I find it and the, and the generosity of her of her um descriptions of others. And I love the way she she does grapple with what does it mean to be a woman. And um and comes up with this idea of it's a spiritual for her it was a spiritual identity not not physical not um a mental construct but but a part of her soul and it was just refreshing to to read uh someone who was willing to express herself at that level uh, that this is this is who i am um mm-hmm. this is what i believe um about my identity it's it's my soul it's my spirit yes that's true isn't it she does she does know that and she seems to understand it 
she's able to kind of talk about it on the page in such a clear way that then I understand, I feel like I understand almost effortlessly how she is feeling because it makes perfect sense. She's able to articulate it in such a, um, in such a sort of clear manner. Yes, her, her writing is so clear and so elegant. It just, I loved it. Yeah, and I think the other thing I do really love about that um, that memoir as well is just the love, the love story between her and her wife, I think is just, I mean, the idea that they stayed together for years and they she talks so beautifully and sort of fondly about the connection they shared and the sort of and the joy they bring each other. It's rare to find such a, I don't know, such a wonderful relationship written about on the page, I think. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, it just totally transcending any of these petty ideas of your physical self that they were connected and, and their, their parenting, um, their family was so important to them. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, gosh. Well, you've made me want to read, you made me want to go back to Conundrum, but also to read her, um, her most recent book. Uh, allegorizings, which I think I have a copy of somewhere. So I must go and look that out. Thank you so much, Claire. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. I'm delighted, Lucy. Thanks for your time. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Claire Oshetsky, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.